morning. It's summer, y'all. You feel it out there? It feels good. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to start with a couple of announcements this morning. Um, this week, if you are a parent of a student, there's a, the Student United Gathering is going to be this Wednesday, June 5th, from 6.30 to 8.30. I say 6.30 because it's usually 6.15, and it's at 6.30 this week because it's going to be held in Madison at the Madison location. So it gives us a little extra time to get over there. Um, so just, just keep that in mind. This is a little bit different than what we normally do. It's kind of getting ready for camp. Uh, that's going to be in a, in a couple weeks. Um, and with that in mind, there is a meeting, a camp meeting for student uh, parents next Sunday, June 9th at 10.30. So right after the 9 o'clock in the multipurpose room, which is right to my immediate right out the doors. This is for parents of all students uh, who've registered for summer camp. And only one parent's required uh, to be there, but you'll be able to turn in those required forms uh, for your student at, at that time and then answer. We can answer any questions that you have about student camp. All right, so we got those two down. This Wednesday is 6.30 to 8.30 in, in Madison for student uh, for United, and then the camp meeting next Sunday at June 9th at 10.30. All right, for those of you that are not listening to those announcements, we've been in the book of Mark. That's where we're jumping back in. That's what we, we kind of roll like that. We go through books of the Bible. And so we're in Mark right now, and we're up to the last week of Jesus' life. And, and, and we've kind of been watching Jesus get approached with these questions, and his authority is challenged, and uh, they want to know, who do you think you are, Jesus? And he had just finished kind of cleaning out the temple and throwing the, the tables over for the money changers. And we've walked through that. And Passover is approaching. It's a, a big time of year. And so there's hundreds of thousands of people that are in town in Jerusalem. And it's building the whole time. And the, and the scene is at the temple. And last week we saw that a scribe had, had approached Jesus and asked an honest question. What is the most important commandment, Jesus? What's the most important? And Jesus said it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he said, yes, of course, I agree with that, right? Um, and he agreed with Jesus. That's what it was. And you know what Jesus did not say? He did not say, great, you're in the kingdom. He surprised him. He says, you're not far from the kingdom. And so the question is that even agreeing with Jesus doesn't put you in the kingdom of God. So what does? How do we get in the kingdom? What is it? How do we, how do we, what is, what is Jesus looking for? According to Mark, what is Jesus looking for? That's what we find the answer to today. What's Jesus looking for? So let's jump in the middle of the action of where we are. Jesus has just wonderfully disarmed all the, the questions that are aimed at him, and now it's his turn to ask a question, right? It's his turn. He said, one, two, three, four, set them up, knock them down, and it's like, all right, my turn. Here's a question, and he's teaching in the temple. So let's pick up verse 35. Stephen had just read. Uh, I'm just going to read a portion of it here. Uh, and Jesus as he taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, which is interesting, in the Holy Spirit, he said this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David calls himself, calls him, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So this is kind of a riddle, right? It feels like a, a, a riddle at least to me, when, when I, I, I read that. And it may be the last time that Jesus is going to publicly speak. If you think about the timeline and where we are, he's, he's not going to be teaching at the temple anymore. This is it. This is the last thing that he's going to say. 
And so Jesus starts with common ground among the people that the Messiah, the Messiah was predicted and he was going to come and he was going to make everything right in Israel, right? And so he knew that on that, that they would agree that the people that are listening, that are around. And this psalm by Jesus' day, it started off as a coronation hymn uh, or coronation psalm, which was sung whenever a, a, a king was being, or he, a person was being made king. When he, they were putting the crown on him, they would say this psalm together, Psalm 110. And Jesus is quoting from the first verse. And back then, whenever you quoted one part, everybody knew what was before it and what was after it, so they had the context. And they understood what was going on, and, and so Jesus knows that. And so he starts there, and, and he reads his psalm. And he knows that by his day, it's no longer just a coronation psalm. It's one of uh, kind of a messianic psalm. They're looking to the future for their Messiah to come and free them from their oppressors. We've talked about that at least a little bit every week. You know, they're looking for this political leader, this great military leader, to free the people. And Jesus says, if the Messiah would be in the line of David, which they expected him to be in the line of David, how do you explain this line, the Lord said to my Lord? Now look carefully. Look at your Bible, and you can see it up here. All right? Up here it doesn't have, like in the ESV version, and some translations will have it, where the first Lord, in quotes, is the L, the O, the R, and the D are all capitalized. And then the second Lord has just the, the first L is capitalized, and then it's a little O-R-D. This version right here just says, the Lord said to my Lord, so it's a little confusing. So in the original languages, what's going on there is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? That's, that's a lot to say. But to say the capital Lord is Yahweh. That's God's, that is creator God. That is the creator of the universe, father of the, in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Father right there. That's God, Yahweh. And then the second Lord with just the capital L and then the O-R-D is the word Adonai. That means master or Lord. And in this context, it would be Messiah. Okay, and so what, what it actually is saying there is the creator God said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's what's going on there. So here's the riddle. This is what Jesus is saying. If the Messiah is in the line of David, why would David call his descendant my Lord rather than my son? Right? In other words, when David wrote this, if he were just foreseeing one of his descendants, he would never call him my Lord. It doesn't make sense in the culture for a father to show that kind of respect for and reverence for a descendant. For a son, I would not say to my son Joshua, my Lord, I mean, you're 10, you're 11, you know, even when I'm old and you're, you know, it's just, it's not happening. <laughs> you're my kid, right? It, and, it, and the same for this. So how can he be David's Lord and David's son? This is what Jesus is teaching. It's like a riddle. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you guys have a view of the Messiah that's, that he's, he's a human who will bring political freedom just to Israel. And if that's so, how do you explain this verse? There's more here. There's more. He's letting them know that the Messiah is much greater than they think. He's more than just a strong leader from the, the line of David. He's God's son who will come into David's line. Right? Human and divine. All God, all man, who comes not simply to put down the enemies of Israel, but to put the enemies of all people down for all time, of sin and death 
and Satan is going to take care of all of that. It's so much bigger than you're, than you're realizing. You're just keeping it to Israel. You're just focused on yourself. And it's so much bigger. It includes the cosmos. That's why we get at the, the end of verse 37. If you look and you'll see there, it says, And the throng, all, all these people that are around, heard him gladly. They're like, this is amazing. This guy teaches with authority and power, unlike the scribes, right? Like, you know, those guys, yeah, they tell us stuff all the time, but when they talk about the Bible, they're just like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and it's just a bunch of information. And when Jesus speaks, it's like, there's life just dripping off of it. That's why we get it, it, it they, they heard him gladly, which is why I think he can get away with what he's about to say in verse 38, <laughs> which is an all-out attack on the scribes. Read this. This is where he falls. So he's like, here's what the Messiah, the Messiah is so much bigger and watch this. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk, who like to walk around in long robes and, and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for, and for a pretense make long prayers, and they will receive the greater condemnation. He's in the temple. You know who else is in the temple? Scribes is in the temple. They're just sitting there going, wait, did, did, did he just talk about me? He was just talking. You remember the guy, you remember the guy that asked, uh, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, Lord, love your Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Scribe. His people, his tribe of scribe right there. And Jesus just, like matter of fact, you know, no big deal. By the way, you're all dogs. What is Jesus doing? We've seen time and time again consistently that Jesus takes human evaluation he takes the world's values and he takes what we consider to be how we measure things how we see things how we value things he takes human evaluation and he flips it on its head right that's exactly what he's doing in these two stories which is why we have all these together today all right he takes the scribes who are at the top of the echelon of society and he takes the widow it's at the bottom of the echelon and he says it's not like you think it's totally different from the right perspective, right? He, he's always doing this. His principles, the principles of his kingdom run counter-cultural, counter to how normal people in the world think, then and now, us, we do. I, I'm constantly challenged by, by this myself, even as I read this, and I, I've read this. We, we've known these stories. If you've grown up in church, you've heard them your whole life. And Jesus says things like, hey, to save your life, lose it. What? what are you he says, to gain your life, lay it down. By the way, greatness is not about being served. It's about serving. Right? He's always saying stuff like that. And here we go again. There's more than meets the eye. And so first he starts with the religious, the religious show-offs, I guess. I have to be careful because that's my job, right? Not to be a religious show-off, <laughs> obviously, but to, to lead at the temple or to the, the worship center. And so this is going to step on my feet. And yours. This is not going to be a happy, good feel message. Good, feel, good feeling message. Well, I'm, I'm, it may be um, when we get the good news. So he starts with the religious show-offs, and then he moves to the religiously insignificant, right? And Jesus gives this warning. This is the one command. He says, "Beware, beware of the scribes." And then he lists three ways to be less impressive than you think. Three ways to be less impressive than you think, right? This is how, this is how you are to be less impressive. And he, and he just goes through there and he talks about what he sees in the scribes that are standing next to him. 
Number one, walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplaces. So, see, most people wore these multicolored robes, but not the scribes. They wore white. It's just solid white, so it would just stick out in a crowd. They could be easily recognized um, for, for their status and their place at the top of the community. And I have to realize that. I mean, I have to th- think like that, right? Now, back in the, in the first century, the scribes, they were most esteemed. They were honored, right? Pastors were honored. It's not like that anymore. In fact, I'm like, you know, people ask me, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm a pastor. And I used to, because I, I was a physical therapist too, I, you know, it took me a while to get there because then I knew, oh, now I'm in a conversation, <laughs> right? And, and, and depending on where, but because it's not held in high esteem anymore, you have to really want to do this. This is not something you do to, to grab a name anymore, which is good. But that's where they were. It felt good to be called master teacher back then. Oh, master teacher, to wear an expensive suit and express God's favor to the world, right? To have the significance of your name plastered all over the place. You're important. They live for the love of the crowd. That's one way to be less impressive than you think. And I can see how that would happen. Number two, they have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. See, back then, the, the seats, the best seats were the ones up front. Nobody flocks there, do they, Vasney? No. In fact, you're very brave, you know. Usually that, that is the one. I tell everybody, front, front row's open because nobody wants to sit there. Everybody's fighting to get to the back, right? It's just a different, it's, it's because you're holy and pious. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. Or it could be a different culture. I don't know. You know, toss up. I'm not sure. Anyway, the more, the more I read through these lists of how to be less impressive, the more I, I feel, the more I'm reminded of being in junior high. I don't know if you remember junior high, man. That was a, that was a tough time. <laughs> that was a tough time. It was hard to get through because back in the 80s when I was there, we had big hair and, and neon colors and lots of style stuff I didn't really understand. I had this feathered haircut. That was back when I had a lot of hair. It was just a ton. And you would have to get it down the middle and feather it and blow dry it. It was no simple thing to fix every morning. I mean, you had to spend time on that, right? I had a denim jacket. I had tight rolled jeans. That was a big deal. Name brands. You want to make sure you were somebody. If you wore the wrong brand, you might be thought of differently. You had to be careful. Everything was hyper judgmental, right? It felt like if I had one conversation, one dumb response from me, or one admission that I didn't really know, some inside joke, that my, re- my reputation would just come crumbling, crumbling down, right? Like as if I had a reputation. Like, I, I, I thought I did, I guess, and I'm like, so I just walk around in this fear of blowing it all the time. So my, my, my energy was put toward maintaining status quo. Don't blow it. Don't let them find out who you really are. Don't let them know. You know? And so there were metrics for everything. Everything. This is like 7th and 8th grade. I, was just, I don't even know if it was real or not, but it was the pressure that I felt. All right? uh, from sports to grades to how you looked to your talent to, to band, right? I mean, wherever it was, how you dress, how you look, how you talk, how you perform, how you succeed. And sometimes it, it doesn't feel like all that much has changed. We're just better at, as adults at hiding it. But Christianity doesn't exist to figure out how to be honored. We're 
upside down. We're supposed to be wanting to honor others. Romans 12 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. It's just the exact opposite of the culture that Jesus is exposing here. And then I find myself in and leaning toward. Number three, another a final way to, to be less impressive than you think. Jesus says, You who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Devour widows' houses. Oh, well, that just means that they like to eat houses. It's, they're tasty. Oh, wait, that's probably not literal, is it? Okay, yeah, that's figurative. That's, that's giving a picture. It means that they're spiritual frauds. They pretend to be one thing, and they're not. You ever heard of a pastor do something like that? It's why we're not honored anymore. We've earned it. I mean, we're not just, just pastors. I mean, people. I remind you all the time that pastors are people. And here they are. They're spiritual frauds. The scribes that pray, P-R-E-Y, upon widows, and then pray, P-R-A-Y, for widows. So scribes were, they weren't paid for that. They had kind of two jobs, right? They would, they're lawyer, half lawyer, half theologian. So they would take donations. Somehow they were taking advantage of widows and then pretending like they were just doing their job and covering it with these long-winded prayers that obviously Jesus wasn't impressed with because he says they will receive the greater condemnation. That's not who you want to be. <laughs> I promise. But we're not anything like those people, right? I mean, those are religious leaders. Those are the people that, that were opposed to Jesus and that Jesus was opposed to. We aren't wanting to be seen by the crowd, we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be seen to seem better than other people and then be celebrated for it. We don't want to live to be noticed. Do, do we? Sometimes it's subtle. Here's how it creeps up in my heart sometimes. Have you ever served so that you'd be noticed for serving? Man, you're such a servant. You've got such a servant's heart. Nobody does like you. You're like a diamond in the rough. Go you. That's how it comes out of me. I want to be noticed. I want to help you, but I want you to know that I'm helping you. Subtle. Just like a scribe. Scribes are not subtle. I'm subtle. You ever see that in yourself? It's an allure that's inside of all of us. And Jesus says, don't, don't live like that. And that concludes his teaching. The last thing he's going to say publicly is say, see these guys? Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. It's an all-out assault on religious elite. And then Jesus, in verse 41, says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people. He just sits down like he's going to the mall and just sits back and does some people watching. Right? Look at there. Watching people put their offerings in. Now, if I were a certain kind of preacher, which I'm not, I'd spend a little time here and explain how Jesus is watching you when you give your offerings. <laughs> so give like he's watching you, right? No, I, I mean, you know, I'm not, but I, I kind of did anyway, right? So, right? <laughs> now, Mark, what Mark records is, I'm just messing with you. Mark records that many people are putting in large sums. And then this poor widow comes, and she puts in two copper, small copper coins, lepta, you know, it just... Basically, it's about two bucks in today's currency. It's just a penny. 
Not much at all. You've probably heard the story a million times. And, and back then in, in, in the synagogue, there were 13 offering boxes that were laid out, and they had these huge shofars or these metal trumpet-like things that had a big opening in the top, and it kind of spiraled down and got smaller, so you put all your coins. There was no paper money. You put coins in there, and they go <laughs> down into its collection offering box, and it'd make a lot of noise. And so you, you, it's kind of, you know, maybe Jesus was just watching that. I don't know. Small gifts didn't make that much noise. Two, two coins, tick, tick, boom. You got a, a bunch to give, you're like pouring stuff, and everybody's like, ooh, it's still going, you know. That, that was kind of what was, was going. And is Jesus against giving a lot of coins? Absolutely not. He didn't say that. He's not. He never said, stop tithing. What did he say? He said, he didn't say don't stop. He didn't say stop tithing. He said, you, you tithe your deal, your mint, and your cumin. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, but, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so it's like the tithe and the offerings that we take here. It's not a command, give 10%. Off the top, it's not a command in the New Testament. We think it's a great starting place. We're commanded to, to give sacrificially, right? And, and some of you, you, you may not be able to do that. You may be like the widow, and that's fine. Don't feel condemned. I, I, I do know it's a lot easier to learn to give when you have a little bit of money than when you have a lot of money, Right? I mean, it, it's a lot, because I'm thankful I learned that from a young age. My dad would like, every time you do something, you put it in this envelope, otherwise you're going to spend it. I'm like, now that was a good thing, because uh, it's a lot easier when you're making $1,000 a month to give 100 bucks, than when you're making like 10000 to give 1000 bucks. I've just I've found that, because 100 bucks is like, for us, like, what, a night on the town with paid babysitting, right? Movie, dinner, and then, you know, $40 to, you know, but you get $1,000 a month, you're talking a couple car payments, redoing the backyard. I mean, there's a lot you can do with that, right? And so that's more serious cash. So what do we learn from this passage, Jamie? So if you're taking notes, here are actually the two points I have are putting all of this together. Number one is radical generosity. And number two is radical dependence. Radical generosity and radical dependence. All right, so look at, what, look at what happens here. Radical generosity. The widow gets Jesus' attention. Does that seem special? Because it does to me. It seems absolutely amazing and unexpected. Verse 43. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus talking, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So what he's doing, he's like, hey, hey, these people watching, right? Hey, come here, disciples. It's not public teaching anymore. It's disciples, come here. This is, this is a teachable moment. This is awesome. Look, watch. Everything I've been kind of talking about, and he hustles the money. He said, this is a moment. I love this. Now, remember, the, the religious leaders are at the top of society, and then you got the widows are at the bottom of society. Most esteemed, least esteemed. And after seeing all the wealthy people give, she should have been embarrassed to walk up there and give that little bit of money. Right? She should have just, what is the point? My two measly pennies, I'll just throw them and run away. I'm not really contributing to anything. And again, what Jesus is doing, he's challenging the human evaluation system. What we think is value. What, you see, the assumption is, in, in our minds, at least in mine, is, is that the, con, the contribution by the widow if it's not irrelevant, it's inconsequential. 
What? Because you know what the offering there is for is for the upkeep of the temple. I mean, think about like this building. This building, we have to have money to, to, there's a mortgage and there's HVAC and there's water bills and there's, you know, we got the parking lot. You have to get the parking lot resealed every two or three years or then you got to pay a lot more. You got to take care of things and steward things well. Even if I don't want to spend money on stuff, I got to spend money on it. If it was up to me, we'd have a metal folding chair and one acoustic guitar up here because that's how I roll. Aren't you glad we, aren't, we don't do it that way, right? That many people tell me, Jamie, you're a team player out of necessity, right? And, and that's, that's true. It gets expensive just to do the things that are expected. So what's that measly two pennies, those two dollars, what's that going to do? What's the point? I mean, clearly two dollars is not worth more than two thousand dollars. So how does Jesus see this? This is the seemingly insignificant widow is not insignificant at all. And Jesus loves this. This is from my heart. It's just like a bomb to my heart. Because I just see us as widows. All of us. She is not insignificant. She's actually famous with God. And she's held in high regard by him. And for those of you that feel you have nothing to contribute, it's like two pennies, that you're not that wealthy, you're not that talented, you feel insignificant or certainly inadequate, where you currently are, maybe you're struggling to be a good mom or a dad or a wife or a husband or provide for your family or being a student, you just don't feel like you've got what it takes, you don't know what to do with your life, or you're trying to care for an aging parent and try to figure out how to navigate that road while you're being a parent here and, and parenting your parents? What do you learn, what do you learn from this? Pa- Here's what you learn. One thing, Jesus sees you when nobody else does. And when nobody else is even looking, I don't even know to look. You're invisible. Jesus is over there. Even when your contribution feels like two pennies toward the kingdom, if it's in faith, it excites Jesus. It just makes my heart just sing. Why? Because Jesus isn't looking for the good looking. He's not looking for the most talented person. He's not looking for the high achievers. He's not looking for what the world is looking for. He's looking for those who know that they need him and who want to give him everything that they've got. That's what he's looking for. He didn't care about all money, no money, great. You ought to give it, you should give it, whatever. Where's your heart? That's what he wants. That's what gets him excited, to give up control to their lives and totally trust him. This is what he's teaching the disciples, that the wealthy give what they would never miss. It's not going to change their lifestyle at all, but the widow gave out of her poverty, the Bible says. And so we think that substantial people give substantial comp- uh, contributions. That the people of high capacity are the ones that really make a difference. That's our worldly thinking. You know what? He's really good at business. Make him an elder. You know what? He's really good at administrative stuff, and he should be in charge of the church. No. Maybe. You want to make a really bad decision? That's how you do it. Where's their heart? Where's their calling? What is Jesus doing? Where is he in this, this equation? Yeah, you got great talent. What's it for? What's it being put toward? Right? This is what he's saying. See, the others gave out of surplus, and the widow gives out of sacrifice. And so Jesus, when he, when he sees our giving, it's not measured 
by the amount, it's measured by proportion. See, the real question isn't what do you give, it's what do you keep? What do we keep? What do we need? It's about sacrifice, not surplus. And if there's never any sacrifice or change in our lifestyle, then are we giving generously? Because if you don't, you're not seeing money as something that God has given as a gift to you, but something that you have earned yourself. Up to the point so far, every Christmas, we'll give our kids, you know, our our kids want to give us Christmas presents, right? And they're not awesome presents because, you know, who spends the money? They didn't make that money. We give them money, they buy presents, and it does this recycling thing. Our money comes back to us in the form of a gift from a child. Right, so we give you X number of dollars, you go to the store, and you give. That's the way it works. God gives us the ability to make money and to make wealth. And we give it back to him, and we distribute it to our families, and we're conduits of his grace and blessing. We're not cul-de-sacs. We don't just sit and take it and keep it for ourselves. See, that, that's the point. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, says it like this. I think the principle holds true. Beware lest, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. I'm not saying be unwise, just give it all away. I'm not saying that. What are you saying? I'm saying don't think you earned all that. That God has given you your abilities we want to remember that. We want to be conduits of God's blessing and not cul-de-sacs. Number two, so we got radical generosity and radical dependence. This is the last one, and we'll finish up. See, Jesus is calling us certainly. If you've read, if you've been in church your whole life, you read the, the widow's might, mainly you just kind of hang there and go, hey, give more. Sermon over. Done. Right? That's kind of wrong. It is about radical generosity with this text for sure, but I think there's another level of application. I've never understood why Mark kind of put the widow's might story on the end here. I don't know if you've really, if you study it. You see, Jesus gets questioned, Jesus gets questions, Jesus gets questioned, and he's questioned one more time, and then he says, hey, here's this thing about the Messiah, and then look at the scribes, and then there's this widow's might, and then you have a totally, total change in how the Bible goes next. Mark goes to the abomination of desolation and all that next week in chapter 13. Is the widow's might story just kind of a tack on to the end? I mean, what, what, how does it fit in? And I think I may understand a little bit better after this week. I think the widow story is actually the climax of this passage, of the, the high point of what Jesus is teaching and saying to his disciples. Because Mark ends observing the lowest in society, giving everything that the widow had in devotion and trust to God. And this is what excites Jesus. You know, John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, it says, you know, here's what the, the Father is seeking. Worshippers. Right? She's a worshiper. And, and Jesus is like, that's what I'm talking about. Right there. Watch. Watch, guys. She, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. That's what the verse says. So the lesson's not just to be more generous. That's, that's part of it. That's on the surface. But the end of verse 44, look at that. The end of verse 44, it says, all she had to live on. You know the Greek word there, 
is bios. Bios is where we get our word for biology. Physical life. I find that very intriguing. Jesus says she put in her whole life when she put that money in. The money was just a a metaphor. She was giving up what little control she as a widow had and trusting God. There's no surplus. She would have to rely on others. She was trusting God, the God who feeds the sparrows to continue to take care of her. She had no audience. Nobody was watching her that she knew of, and yet she gave. And most of us give what we can afford without losing control over anything. And so my contention is, my, my, my thought is this. Maybe, maybe the reason we don't connect with God like we want to is because we're afraid of losing control. Maybe the reason we don't connect with God the way that we want to is because we're afraid, uh, we're afraid of losing control, of really giving our lives. Because here's what's going on with the widow's story and why I think it's a climax. It's really pointing to Jesus in the gospel. And as admirable as she is, and as followable as she is, she is only giving her, her life away figuratively and trusting God. Jesus, two days from now, will literally give his life away and entrusting it to God. The widow gave away everything that she had, and Jesus is about to give away everything. So that's the picture of Philippians 2. He emptied himself. And so, and so he w- he's going to stretch out his arms on the cross and give his life so that we could have true life. That makes 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 make a lot more sense when Paul frames the gospel in terms of poor and rich. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich like him, not rich like we think. You see, you see how Paul does that? He tells the gospel in terms of rich and poor. That Jesus would take our punishment and condemnation, though he deserved justice. And he didn't deserve that. So that we who deserve the condemnation would get righteousness and life with God. We just simply have to repent and believe. We turn away from our sin and we, we trust in Christ. You can do that today. He wants us to follow him and to live like him and to give our, way, our lives away like him. To give up control, to radically trust him. To recklessly abandon every area of life in following him. Your money, your marriage, your kids, your savings, Are you trusting him today? Can you say to Jesus, whatever, whenever, wherever? We call it the three W's. It's what we look for in volunteers, but Jesus looks for it in followers. Whatever, whenever, wherever. Are you willing to say that with your job? I'm yours. What are your two pennies to give up? What control do you need to give up? If you're in high school and you're making a decision about college, is the football program make, helping you make your decision? Or do you think through, how can my life most in, be most impactful for the gospel? Can I go to school overseas where they're giving away scholarships for 
English-speaking students so that I can affect unreached people groups? Is that even a thought process? It wasn't for me. I didn't know that was a thing. If you have a job that you can farm out, right? How, how do we take the jobs we have and leverage them for the gospel, right? To, to be theological vocational practitioners, which is a fancy word for saying your job is tor- turned toward the gospel in all, all abilities, every way that you can. What about taking your retirement and leveraging that for the gospel rather than retiring to the golf course, right? We may play some golf. That's fine. How can you take this time of your life, and, and people are even now what we're doing, is, is there are people that like three or four retire, retirement age couples are moving together to, to be in a retirement community in places that are near unreached people groups in other parts of the world and leveraging their later years for the gospel. That's a thing now. I was amazed at that. I haven't thought like that before. We're, we're, we're putting it all in. We're taking our lives and putting them in. We're all in for something that really matters. It's not your best life now, it's your best life later, right? Do we believe that? Do we live in such a way that displays that? that that's the question. Do you live like the widow? Because Jesus laid his life down. And this is not a guilt trip. This is the only way that you can is because you recognize what he did for you and out of the power from the Holy Spirit, out of joy and out of following him with your whole life, that's what flows and springs up. It's not, hey, I want to go do this so that God will accept me. You you know that that's not the way that that works. You'll get tired, bitter, and angry at that. That it flows out of that, that you, because you've been accepted by God on on the basis of Christ, that from that obedience flows and joy springs up. So my final question was, what if, I don't know, we usually have 400 plus people here. What if 400 of us got that? And it wasn't just 10%. What if our hearts just really got lit up? And we're like, man, that widow, she was on to something. I want to take whatever God has given me. I want to live my life. I want to be all in. I want to give more of myself to you. I want to see you explode and be lifted up and Jesus' name be lifted up and that all men and women be lifted up to him. I want to see that happen. I want to see your name be glorified. I want to see the unreached people groups. I want that to go from 7,000 down. If I can just help it go down by one and even with just pouring my life in there, I want to be part of that. How can that happen? And we start praying like that. That. That's what's happening here. Man, that's our prayer. And so that's what I want us to pray for today. Let's pray. Um, we have a couple of directives that are on the line, up on the screen. Spend, one, spend a minute as the worship team comes, just reflecting in a relationship with God. Are you connecting with him like you want? Is it going the way you thought? You can ask him, what do you need to let go of? Is it your job? I did that this week with my wife. I just want to be in all good. Where, God? What do you want us? What do you want us to do? Anything. And then pray that we would be a people marked by radical generosity and radical dependence on God.